Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is John Taylor, the Mary and Robert Raymond Professor of Economics at Stanford University and the Bowen H. and Janice Arthur McCoy Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. John, welcome to EconTalk. Great to be here. John, I think most Americans see the Federal Reserve as a deeply mysterious and at times threatening institution. What should an educated person understand about what the Fed is actually doing and trying to do? Its main mission now is to keep... uh, uh, the purchasing power of the dollar stable, if you like, to prevent inflation, to make sure we don't have uh, a Great Depression again, to make sure we don't have high inflation rates like we had in the 70s, to keep the economy on an even keel, mainly by keeping the inflation rate low. That's its, its primary objective. And it was, it was set up in 1914. It's, it's evolved over time. Probably wouldn't set it up exactly that way if you had to do it from scratch, but that's the institution. And that's what its mission is. Now, you actually said two things, which to me seem kind of different. One is to keep the price level stable, and the other is to avoid uh, some economic catastrophe like a Great Depression. I think the reader of the newspapers, the business section, the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times would seem to think that the job of the Fed is to, quote, steer the economy, to stimulate it, but not too much, and to keep prices stable. But those missions are not the same thing. Well, it's interesting. What we've seen and learned over time is how consistent the goal is of, of price stability, of keeping uh, inflation from getting out of hand. How consistent that goal is with keeping the economy stable, making recessions uh, rare, making recessions mild, uh, and having long expansions. Those two goals actually are, to me, really quite uh, consistent with each other. And you can see that historically. You can prove it uh, using macroeconomic models uh, or just common sense. So just think of it historically for a minute. If you go back into the 19, late 60s and 70s, we had a very unstable price level. Inflation was gotten to double digits. Uh, the inflation would rise. The Fed would put on the brakes. It would be the, the boom and the bust. You'd have a... The economy would zoom up and then it would crash back down again. In that period of time from the late 60s to the early 80s, we had roughly five uh, uh, business cycles, five recessions. Uh, and uh, so roughly one every three or four years. It's just amazing. And so that price instability, that high inflation situation was associated with very poor stability, terrible economy. So then you, then you look at the years starting in the early 80s, uh, when you had under uh, Volcker, who, who started as the chairman of the Fed in 1979, followed by Greenspan, you had this great effort to bring about a more stable uh, price level, lower inflation. Lower and, and consistent inflation, too. It's not just the level, it's also the variability, Variability. Right? Keep a stable inflation rate. No, get rid of those ups and downs, make it much more steady. And low. Low is, low is important. Yeah. Steady is important, too. 
But when you moved into that period, we had a, a huge reduction in the, in the volatility of GDP and the ups and downs in the economy went uh, down dramatically. So since the um, 1982, when the expansion of the 80s began, thoroughly through today, um, we've had two <coughs> recessions. We may be in one now, we don't know, but up until now we've had two recessions in a span of 25 years. And they've both been very mild. So it's just completely different. So the low inflation, stable inflation is associated with much better economic performance, fewer recessions, as I say, less severe recessions, et cetera. So that's what I read from, uh, from history. And, and uh, our theories of monetary policy, to me, suggest the same thing. Uh, you mentioned the views you'll hear in the newspaper about, well, you can either have price stability or you can have uh, growth. Um, that gets um, more to the very short-term things. You know, I gave a comparison of a 15-year period and a 25-year period. Those are long spans of time. That's what you need to look at to get a sense of what's going on. But if you look at any particular episode, like the one we're in now, for example, there does seem to be this, this trade-off that the Fed can either uh, make the economy uh, less uh, likelihood to go down, to have a recession, or it can prevent inflation. Uh, but it's a false trade-off for the most part. The most important thing is to keep inflation under control. And that brings about the economic stability. Now, normally, the way I was taught in graduate school, and I think uh, correctly, to keep inflation down, you have to keep the growth and the money supply down. And yet, in recent years, uh, going back to the late 1980s, uh, the Fed, at least in it, the way it talks about its policy, although some might say they do something different, but at least the way they talk about policy and the way they communicate policy is through interest rate changes. And I think the average person has the following story in mind, at least some of the average people I talk to, not so average, pretty well-educated people. They have the following idea in mind, that, that when the economy is slowing, the Fed needs to cut interest rates to stimulate the economy. And... That, in turn, should stimulate monetary expansion. Lower interest rates should encourage more borrowing. Uh, and that, in turn, should raise prices. So give me the right way to think about how this uh, price stability, a steady economic growth scenario works with the Fed's avowed control of interest rates and what they're trying to do. And maybe I should lead into that with your question about money growth mm -hmm. uh, and try to to um, explain that a little bit more, because you're quite right. It used to be that the Fed was viewed as controlling the growth rate of the money supply. And of course, that makes a lot of sense if you want to control inflation, because more money growth causes more inflation. More money uh, causes higher prices. And so that's still a fundamental aspect of monetary theory. That hasn't changed uh, over the years. That's just how it's always been. But what we have found, and central bankers really around the world have found, is that measuring money has become more difficult because of all the different ways that people can make payments through credit cards, through ATMs, or different ways that can, people can, can save in a bank besides just a demand deposit that, that uh, doesn't pay interest and can be used for transactions. So all of these things have made it much more difficult to measure what money is, and they therefore made it more difficult for central banks to control this. It's not that it's not important, it's just that it's much harder to measure and get your hands around. So what has happened as a result 
is the use of the interest rate rather than money to control inflation. It was always there, you know, to some extent in the past, but it's come to be much more uh, dominant as a way for central banks to think. So now, when they meet, they debate what, in the United States, the federal funds rate should be. It's 2% now, and they're debating this week as we speak, and they're and debating other times. Uh, uh, they're always debating. They could sure. stay continually debating. That's the output of the meeting. What, That's the output if, of the meeting. Is it going to stay the same, or are they going to change it? And remind our, it's, by the way, we're, we're recording this on... August 4th, 2008, to give it a little bit of uh, time setting. But remind our listeners what the federal funds rate is and how the Fed controls it. Yeah, the federal funds rate is the bank, the, the rate that banks uh, charge each other when they borrow overnight. So if, if Citibank lends to Bank of America, uh, they charge a rate for that overnight loan, and that's the federal funds rate. It's 2% now. They can charge whatever they want. It's a market-determined rate, It's a market-determined rate. That's what they charge. So how does the And Fed even control? the 2% is an average of different uh, transactions, so it's not a fixed number, and it goes up and down during the day. So how does the Fed affect that? We may, the way I think people think about it incorrectly is they just go out and they ratchet it up or down. They just reset it, but that's not what they're literally doing. No, what they do is they provide more or, or less uh, funds to these markets, basically. So they increase if they increase the supply of reserves, the supply of, of money into the market that drives down the interest rate. If they withdraw money from the market, it makes money tighter and that raises the interest rate. So that's basically how they, but it's a market rate. It would be like if, there, if a, an agency was trying to control the price of, uh, of corn in agriculture, they supply more corn, bring more corn back, and that tends to affect the price. Same and, idea. And with corn, they would go buy some or they sell some. Yep. What's the Fed doing? to inject or, or well, restrict buys, reserves? It's a good question. It's got to buy something. They could buy anything. I always tell my students they could buy ketchup. They could sell ketchup if they had enough of it. <laughs> but they don't use ketchup. They use something which is much more plentiful, and that is treasury bills. They buy or sell treasury bills. And so when you, buy, when you go out, just if you went out and purchased ketchup, you'd pay for it. And so there are money, more money would come into the economy as you paid for it. Uh, same way they, if they buy treasury bills instead of ketchup, that provides more money to the economy, more uh, uh, funds into this banking sector, and that reduces the interest rate, and vice versa when they want to raise the interest rate. So again, just to stick with the logistics, if they want to raise that rate from two to two and a quarter, they are going to b uh, buy, excuse me, sell treasury bills and extract money out of the economy. Exactly. And, and they'll watch that rate till it hits two and a quarter, and then they'll stop? And how do they get to the well, rates right. that they... uh, The rates are always moving around. There's right. many, many traders in these markets, so it's not quite as precise as that. But you, you can think of it as that way. On an hourly basis, there's quite a bit of fluctuation. So they're looking at it closely. They're not trying to pinpoint exactly the current rate, like 2% or 3% or whatever it happens to be. It'll jump around that. And so they just want to keep it roughly around those numbers. Okay, so let's go back to our story. Right. Where so, were we? So we, we were explaining how, over time, the Fed has moved away from focusing on money to focusing on interest rates. And by the way, you can see in the story about how interest rates are set that they're intimately related. You produce more money yeah. in the short term, that's going to reduce the interest rate. So what happens now is that instead of focusing on the money supply, they focus more on the interest rate. Mm -hmm. and so if, if they can therefore raise or lower the interest rate by these injections and what they decide about to do when they decide things they talk about the interest rate and the markets look at the interest rate and 
the whole world looks at the interest rate. So in a period of time when the Fed is cutting the federal funds rate and they're doing that by injecting uh, money into the economy, why isn't that inflationary and why isn't that going to lead to a conflict between the stable price level and the healthy economy we were talking about to start with? Well, it can be inflationary if it's overdone, if the, if the Fed reduces interest rates too much, it can be overdone, certainly, and that can cause inflation. And if you go back to the bad old days we were talking about, say the late 60s and 70s, you can see they sometimes brought the interest rate down too much, and effectively by pr producing too much money. So the question is, how much? And uh, I have thought about that a lot, and we devised various kind of benchmarks to make the judgment. But it does require a judgment to know how much it should come down and how much it, sh it sh when it shouldn't come down. But it, to to make a long story short, what they want to do is lower interest rates if inflation seems to be falling, because that will provide more money, right? Lower interest rates, more money, that will bring the inflation rate back up, keep it on an even kill. Or if inflation starts to rise, then what they should do is be raising interest rates because that means pulling, if you like, putting money out of the system and tends to bring the inflation rate back down again. So the first thing to think about in terms of their interest rate policy is what they need to do to keep the inflation rate on track. And again, what that means is raising interest rates when inflation picks up, reducing interest rates when inflation goes down and gets into what also is price instability would be negative inflation and prices falling. That's not good either. You want this even keel of price stability. So probably the most important thing about monetary policy and interest rate setting is to use those interest rates and adjust them to keep the inflation rate in line. Now, well, that is a nice transition to the Taylor Rule which is named after you, and, and uh, there aren't many things named after people in economics, uh, especially very few things that are probably good things. So that, that's really a, a nice thing to have. Talk about what the Taylor Rule is, and I want to make a distinction between what the Fed should do and what it actually does when appropriate to make that distinction. So the story you just told me was a story, I think, that sounded to me about what the Fed should do, and I think often what they actually do, but... They're not always the same. Um, so tell us what the Taylor Rule is. I, I, my understanding is it's both a guide and a, uh, uh, a description. So yes. it is both normative, that is, what should be, and positive, what actually is. So uh, Yes, that's exactly right. So let, let me uh, explain this uh, maybe historically a little bit because mm -hmm. it gets into the normative-positive distinction. So in the, in the 1980s, when, as I mentioned before, the Fed and other central banks were moving away from money to interest rates as their instrument, there was a great need to have a guideline or a benchmark of how they should make these changes. And I alluded to it in my previous, uh, in a previous exchange. And so many of us in research were thinking about ways to really build on the work of Milton Friedman, if you like, who always emphasized policy rules for to keep um, uh, things transparent about monetary policy, that you needed to have a guide uh, for, for monetary policy and for people to understand it. So what we effectively needed to do was to, to build on Milton Friedman's idea of a policy rule for the money supply, which was good and it corresponds to the money supply as the f thing that affects inflation, but really to, to replace that or try to think of an alternative that would work for the interest rate. Uh, 
So now a rule for the interest rate that would tell the central bank how much to change the interest rate. So that's basically a should thing. So how much should they change the interest rate? A normative suggestion. And what I came up with was something quite simple, and it's important to be simple. And the simple idea was to say that the Fed should look at a couple things, as a, at least as an approximation. One is inflation, of course, as I already mentioned. But second is the state of the economy, how much GDP is growing or slowing. How much, what, what is the state of the economy? Are we in a recession? Are we in a boom? To basically look at those two factors again, inflation and GDP. And based on those two variables, now we can be thinking of it as a, as a rule, based on those two variables, decide on the interest rate. So here's how it works. If inflation rises by, say, 1%, one percentage point, then the rule says that the Fed should increase the interest rate by one and a half percentage points. So 1.5, if you like. Inflation, take the inflation rate. So if we've been at 3% steady for a while, and all of a sudden it jumps up to 4 we want to respond to that. By raising the interest rate one and a half percentage points. Exactly. Okay. So that's the response that's important. And, it, and it's important that it be larger than the increase in the inflation rate. So the fact that it's greater than one, is one and a half in my example, is important. I mean, we could be 1.6, 1.7. We don't know for sure. This is, this is uh, an imprecise science. But the idea that it be greater than one is very important to get enough of a of a response by the monetary system to bring the inflation rate down. And it's by similar token, the other variable, remember, is GDP. So if GDP starts to fall, like you're in a recession, for example, then it also entails reducing the interest rate, and it's by a particular amount. Basically, if GDP falls uh, by uh, one percentage point relative to its growth path, then you'd cut the interest rate by a half a percentage point. So the, there the coefficient is 0.5. And again, it's not we don't know exactly what it should be, 0 0.7, 0 0.6, 0 0.4, but the half is a nice round number and seemed like a good thing based on the th monetary theory that we, re we use. We have models, you know, and so you could say, where'd you come up with one and a half and a half for these coefficients in this rule, if you like, this benchmark? Well, by trying different ones out, trying different numbers out, different policies. When you say trying them out, policies. you mean within, within the model, not, yeah, within not, the, not right. as chair of the Fed. That's right, primarily with the model. And as I'll mention in a minute, effectively we had, ex had uh, natural experiments in history, uh, if you like, so you could see what would work and not. But originally, by using our theories, our models, and putting these... Uh, rules, different rules in the models, and seeing how they work. It's like, you know, simulation, if you like, of different uh, uh, policies. So based on that, uh, came up with this normative proposal, and that was in the early 19, late 80s, early 90s. And, um, and to me, it was important simply because we needed to have an alternative to the, to the money growth rules. And now there was an alternative, this interest rate rule. What I think turned out to be very surprising to many people, including myself, is that soon after publishing that work, which was actually 1992, the Federal Reserve policies turned out to be very closely described by this uh, rule. In other words, it was not only normative, as we thought, but it tended to be positive or descriptive, as uh, the term you use, positive. 
And a number of things are important about that. One is it, it obviously attracted a lot of interest because now people say, oh, this is maybe a, a way to describe what the Fed does. And so for financial markets, that's extremely important. People make and lose huge, huge amounts of money based on what the Federal Reserve does to the interest rate. So uh, we began to see that. I, others saw it in the first few years in the 90s and then really throughout most of the 90s uh, and, um, and until very recently, very close, and not always, as you say, not always very closely described, but sometimes, uh, sometimes off. So let me just say one more thing about this, because you mentioned uh, how, we, how we've learned about this. A couple of things have happened. Uh, one is if you go back to the bad old days of the 60, late 60s, late in the 70s, you'll see that the Fed could not be described very well by such a policy rule. It was a terrible description. But that was also the period where the policy was terrible. So it began to say, well, we have a period in the, in the, in the 80s and 90s where things are working well. That's a period which seems to be pretty closely described by this rule. Ha, huh? that must mean the rule's pretty good. And you look back into the late 60s and 70s, the performance of the economy is terrible, and the rule is a terrible predictor of what the Fed's doing. So they're off the rule, policy is not on the rule, and, and the economy is doing poorly. So that's more evidence that this is a good way to actually conduct policy. Then, of course, you have the rest of the world. And perhaps the most amazing thing about this is that same story holds for many other countries. And when now Same story, meaning if they follow the rule, things are pretty good, and when they're not following the rule, things are pretty awful. Right. So one, one way to respond to that would be, well, that's 25 years. It's a small drop in the bucket, and, and uh, maybe it's just some correlations there that are just um, random. Right. Yeah. How, how do you... How do you uh, Give me reason to 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 think that this is more than just a coincidence. Well, first of all, I say I think you're right that nothing lasts forever. So you, you have to be on guard for for changes in the economy or the financial system or technology. It's it's a, this is something where judgment is required. And indeed, there are discussions frequently about whether. The Fed or the central banks should should take policies which are different from a guideline like this, and that happens sometimes. And we're now looking back, for example, at the period 2002-2004, where the Fed had a rate lower than predicted or or uh, described by such a rule, and then that has led to a, this boom in the uh, housing market and the rest of the economy, which in turn I think has led to the in part of the crisis we're in now. So that would say, well, that was a period where getting off the rule was not a good idea again, at least as I view it, and there's obviously debate about that subject. But, but going forward into the future, very hard to know how the economy will evolve, and I certainly have been surprised that these very simple benchmarks have held up so well. I mean, 25 years, you're right to drop in the bucket for, for uh, economic history in the broadest sense. But it's amazing to me how it's held up so well and it's applied to other countries during this period. But I can't be sure. And you can look at 
things that might make it more difficult. We may have difficulty measuring inflation. Emerging market countries now are worried about their exchange rates. So right now we have a, a, a possible problem globally about inflation picking up. I think it's because central banks are off the rule or getting off the rule and we've seen inflation rising. But it may be because their exchange rates are becoming more of a, of a factor. So I, I wouldn't want to say this is the kind of thing that will work for all time by any means. Uh, but I think we should be. I would tend to look at the glass half full aspect of this, that it's worked remarkably long. And let's, if we need to change things, let's be systematic and as scientific as possible in doing that. And I guess, at least in the current environment, it, given the evidence, the, the, the way you read it, that we should encourage the chair of the Fed to follow the rule. Yeah, absolutely. I think I've been more confident in, in, uh, in that over time because originally when I proposed it, it was, as I used the word benchmark and a guideline, not the, the, not the last word. And I would be the first to emphasize that, I always have. It's not meant to be mechanical. You need to have a Federal Reserve. You need to have people making the judgments. But over time, what I've seen is the periods where you've seen deviations. And we haven't seen deviations like in the battle days, the 60s and 70s for sure. But when you've seen deviations, it's always led to events which you would rather not have. And, uh, you know, maybe it's my looking at this with my own glasses, but just quickly, 1987. Uh, the it's a Reserve, bad year. It was a stock market crash. Yep. The Federal Reserve cut interest rates more than uh, not much more, but a little bit more than policy rules suggested. Well, the economy kept booming and eventually had to tighten a lot more. The Federal Reserve had a tight had a recession. And then you have 1998, where, again, the Fed went under what would be predicted by the policy rule with the interest rate. That, that uh, was certainly a factor le leading to the exuberance in the markets and ultimately required uh, a tightening of monetary policy and then a recession in the um, period of 2000-2001. Uh, Although it was not a recession by the standard of two consecutive periods right, of growth. Right. It was at the time of negative growth. It was at the time, but after revisions, uh, it was discovered there were not two consecutive right. uh, uh, quarters. However, uh, but it, but it's a recession but, by NBER. Right, and labor markets acted like they were in a recession, very similar to me to the way current labor markets are acting. We have negative job growth consistently now for, I think, six months in a row, mm -hmm. uh, despite the fact that GDP is growing slower than it had been, but it's still growing. Uh, there's something else going on there, it seems like. Yeah, well, job growth, we've lost... Uh, roughly 500,000 jobs since the peak. Uh, remember, in, even in the 2001 period, um, it was 3.5 million jobs. So, so far, it was not even close to that. I bet it, was, it was surprising at the time how long it took uh, for, for the labor market to reflect what looked like a healthy economy. It had been a very mild recession, right. just like this one. If it turns out to be one, I suspect will be a mild one. Um, let, 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 me ask, let me ask the question a different way. Um, We've had 25 awfully good years by historical standards. You could say we've had 50 good years, although you know the 60s and 70s weren't great. Uh, they were. It was a. It's been a much more stable macroeconomic environment in the United States in the second half of the 20th century than the first half. Um, do you have any thoughts on 
One, whether that's true relative to the 19th century, when we had a, a, didn't have a Federal Reserve, pre-1914. And secondly, given your feelings about how, to the extent we've failed in the last 25 years because of over-enthusiastic Federal Reserve policy in one direction or the other, what the implications are for how we ought to structure the Fed or chastise the Fed chair down the road. Because you kind of what you're really saying is it's been great, could be even better. Um, other people would say, well, you know, they're human beings, they're prone to political considerations, they're not going to follow the rule, there are going to be times when they're going to be pressured by political factors, and that's an inherent flaw in the Fed, we're not going to get better at it. If you look back over a long span of time, let's let's think of the the Great Depression was, of course, a terrible performance. You had you know, double-digit, twenty-five uh, percent unemployment rate, just really a terrible situation. And I think, in retrospect, uh, Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz showed this. You can blame a lot of that on the Fed in this in this case, not keeping money growth up and letting the financial system deteriorate. So so there you can certainly blame the Fed. I also think that the period of the late 60s and 70s, although not that severe, was, was uh, similar. They let inflation get out of hand, and you had a, you had a lot of difficult times, lots of you know, five recessions, nothing like the Great, Reset, Great Depression, but, but bad economic times. Okay, so I think what has been good about the last 25 years or so is that we've avoided those kinds of catastrophes and had remarkably uh, stable performance and and it's re it's been under the leadership of very uh, skilled uh, people so you can't say that the uh, leadership isn't important to me it's essential you've got uh, people in charge that just did a tremendous job and Volcker getting that inflation rate down and Greenspan taking over from him during that period was was really tremendous so I want to say that uh, you can't do without uh, good, talented people running policy at this point. So what do you do? Um, your, your question was political. How can you prevent people from uh, doing the wrong thing for political reasons, I think, is the question. And it's, it's tr But it's true of all, pol all types of economic and public policy, right? You're, you're, you have vested interests, or you have uh, earmarks in, in the Politics. You have in these days. You're reading about various, even corrupt officials, uh, in, in the legis various legislatures. So that is a problem in uh, public policy all the time. And so, what can we do about it? One is we can we can rely on our democracy to get the best people and to and to communicate as best we can about what that that means and what the things they should be doing are. Whether what they should be doing, whether it's tax policy or whether it's uh, monetary policy. I think that's important. That's why I think it's, it's so important in a, in a democracy to have a civil society out there and have recordings like this so people can debate these issues and, and hear various people talk about it and get involved. So I think that's the way to, to prevent it. We also have, in the case of monetary policy, a tradition of giving some independence to the uh, officials so that they are not suspect susceptible, if you like, to short-term political pressures. It doesn't mean it takes it off completely, but yeah. that's the concept. Yeah. It, but still, I mean, you have to, you have to, not just that, that's not enough. And in fact, sometimes that can go the wrong way. But it's not enough, independence is not enough, you need to also have 
uh, people who, who want to do the right thing. But I'm, I guess I'm kind of reacting to your remark about the artfulness of the job and, and that your rule is not a has to be implemented by human beings and make judgments. And right. Might we not have been better off if the rule had just been implemented by the Milton Friedman-like computer that had blindly followed this imprecise but steady rule and avoided perhaps the recession of 91 and 01 and maybe this one? It's possible. Uh, I think we, we should be thinking about whether there's a ways to make it more mechanical. I understand but, it might not be but it's not there yet. plausible. But. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's most certainly. I mean, Milton Friedman's rule despite its elegance and um, attractiveness, really would not be, didn't go very far politically. But I think, uh, aside from that, you, there's ways you can, you can emphasize the disadvantages of deviating. And so I just gave you three, you know, and, and some of those are being picked up. Uh, so, for example, the deviation in 2002-2003 period, a lot of people recognize that now. There's a lot of been written about it. And I, what that will do, and a lot of monetary policy officials I talk to, that will do is if they do deviate again, it will get them back on on track sooner. So that's sort of learning from that experience. But now I've thought about the idea of even being more mechanical. I just I don't think we're there yet. But if there's ways to do it, we should be trying to do it. Just uh, as an aside, when I interviewed Milton in summer of 2006, shortly before his death. Uh, I asked him uh, about the Fed's focus on interest rates, and his answer was, they talk about it, but they really follow a steady money growth rule, even though they don't say they do. Do you want to react to that? Well, Milton and I discussed this is these issues many, many years um, here at Stanford and other places. And I think, let me say what I think he's saying here is that, say take the Taylor Rule, for example, that, as I say, will increase interest rates when inflation um, rises, and by increasing interest rates, you're really pulling back on money growth in some sense. So you could argue that's a way to keep money growth constant, and he would think of it that way. In fact, you'd so, sometimes he would say the Taylor rule is a good way to keep money growth constant, and that makes inflation low, etc. And uh, I have to say that one of the things that I always thought was, and still do, a good sign of robustness of the Taylor Rule, is that it has features very close to a fixed money growth rule. And um, it, for example, with a fixed money growth rule, uh, if inflation picks up, then what we call real money balances decline. So the, the amount of money compared to the prices declines. The purchasing power of... Yeah, your, the purchasing your, power of money uh, declines, and so that automatically causes interest rates to rise. So in fact, in a Milton Friedman money growth rule, an increase in inflation will bring about an increase in interest rate to, to uh, much like in a Taylor rule. Mm -hmm. the, the, the numbers and the magnitudes might right. not be the same, but it has Correct. those features. That's an important sign of robustness. So I've always felt that's an important thing to stress. But anyway, I think the, if, if, it, if one wants to think about interest rate setting as a way to generate a monetary policy rule that generates fixed money growth, that's fine. I don't think that's how uh, most central banks think about it. Well, let's shift gears. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the risks that are currently in place in our, in our economic system. 
Uh, we interviewed, uh, I interviewed Robert Barrow a few weeks ago about disasters, and he suggested there's a big increase in, still low, but a big increase in the probability of some sort of financial or macroeconomic meltdown in the United States. And people are always worried about stuff, worry sells. Uh, what's your general level of anxiety? Um, on the surface, everything looks remarkably good for bad times. Uh, the economy grew last quarter. Again, not as much as you'd like, but it grew. Uh, unemployment hit a four-year high at 5.7%, which is still a pretty low number. Uh, job growth is, is, is negative, but again, as you said earlier, the, the total amount's relatively small compared to past downturns. So on the surface, it looks like, well, the economy's not so good. But, and yet, other people wave around these very frightening scenarios. Where do you stand on this? How dangerous are these times? Well, you have to look under the surface to see the danger. There's no question about it. And when I look under the surface, I see some very unusual happenings that I think would make anyone worried. So a lot of it has to do with the financial system. So if you look, for example, at the rates that banks charge each other for, for, uh, for loans more than just a day. We talked about the federal Not the federal funds, funds right? Not the federal funds rate. Say three months or something like that. They are very high compared to normal times. So there's something that suggests that there's a lot of risk in the banking sector. Banks are even worried about lending to each other, even what we consider the top banks. So, and that's still there. It's been there since last summer, of summer of uh, 2007. It's about a year now. And that's, that hasn't diminished. So there's this, this, this very unusual uh, risk factor. And it, I think it's due to the fact that there are securities out there that originally were uh, created as part of the mortgage securitization, these various collateralized obligations, collateralized debt obligations, collateralized mortgage ob obligations, whatever they are, which uh, are, are sitting out there and people don't know how to assess their value. And that un uncertainty is quite, uh, quite unique. And uh, again, that's something you haven't seen for, for many, many years. So that worries me. And, and, and another reason why it can be worrisome is that if housing prices continue to fall, that will make a lot of those securities even more suspect and lead to more problems in the financial sector. And so that, that's what, when I say look under the surface, you see that, and it's very important. Now, the question is, um, how will that spread to the rest of the economy? And what, what is the spillover? Is there going to be one? And so far, we've been blessed that there hasn't been as much as one would suspect. It's been there, and the economy is weak, and it's uh, something that we, we, we need to be concerned about. But it could be worse, given the very unusual circumstances in the financial sector. Well, let me talk about three players in that financial market. And, and, uh, and as an amateur outsider, uh, confess that I don't understand the anxiety that people have about them. So... Your former Treasury official, your huge uh, expert on the Fed. The Fed and the Treasury have both acted uh, very unusually uh, in recent months. So the three players I'm thinking about are Bear Stearns, uh, Freddie Mac, and Fannie Mae. And people say, well, you know, if one of those, or if any, each time they come up in conversation, people say, well, we couldn't let them fail. Uh, the Fed it acted rather extraordinarily uh, months back when. They orchestrated the rescue of Bear Stearns in some dimension. Uh, you have to figure out what the right word is to describe it, but they basically 
uh, forced Bear Stearns into some sort of salvage operation. Um, the government's about to bail out uh, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. Mm -hmm. As an outsider who's skeptical about government bailouts, my first thought is, well, you know, if Bear Stearns goes under, uh, which they did, but in a, they went, they didn't go down as far as they should have. They they were sort of bailed out. And their, cre their creditors were bailed out for sure. Their creditors yeah. were bailed out, and and the the people in the decision makers at Bear Stearns uh, were punished, but not quite as much as they would have been had they gone bankrupt the next day. As was supposedly the worry. I look at that and I say, well, they made some really bad decisions. They bought a bunch of stuff, these collateralized things, which I understand to be just simply bundles of mortgages, which nobody could evaluate the real uh, financial worthiness of it. Why smart people would buy things of unknown value is hard to understand, presumably because in a market of rising prices, they figured uh, they'd turn out to be okay. But they made what turned out to be a very stupid decision to risk, it turned out, their firm solvency on it. Um, they should have paid the full price. They didn't. Uh, they paid a big price, but not the full price. Why shouldn't they have paid the full price? So what? They'd gone out of business. What was the worry about the this sort of spillover mm -hmm. domino concern that, that I think uh, government officials involved in that would have, would have justified, would have claimed? What, what they are worried about, and which it is hard to assess from the outside, is various kinds of spillover. So in the case of Bear Stearns, you have Bear Stearns creditors who were supplying credit to Bear Stearns. If Bear Stearns goes under, then they get stuck with the collateral for those loans. Some of the entities who were creditors of Bear Stearns supplying loans were mutual funds. So the mutual funds holding some will, will then be holding, rather than a loan to Bear Stearns, they get the collateral, which may be one of these mortgage-backed securities, and then they're obligated to sell that. And so that's a real risk to the mutual funds, which would, these are money market mutual funds, things that are many, many people hold and which are viewed as relatively safe. And so you bring, you could have brought that into question. There's uh, various things like that that people point to that could have happened. Now, what I would say, in my own perspective, and I, I think the problem here is many people do not know how to, just like you, use a tendency to be skeptical. You're, you don't know really what the nature of it is, and you also think what the incentive is in people's minds. The incentive is going to be to try to you know, prevent anything from going wrong and maybe make things worse in the future by encouraging people to take risks, the so-called moral hazard. So I think uh, th some things have to be done here, even if you just give, let's give the uh, policymakers the benefit of the doubt and not try to second guess Bear Stearns, for example. But what it tells to me is that we've got to find a way to clarify what's going to happen in the future. Because if this is done for Bear Stearns, what about the next investment bank? What about a hedge fund that also could be viewed as having systemic Possibilities. So I think it's very it's crucial now for the Fed, uh, Treasury, and government to try to be precise, more precise, to stipulate the circumstances, and to run through the scenario that they're thinking about for Bear Stearns. And it's still vague. I gave you an example with money market mutual funds, but that's never been articulated 
by public officials that I know of. So what you need to do, it seems to me, is have a, 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 a set of guidelines. You could think of it as like policy rules, quite frankly. Again, sure. so try to say as best you can when an intervention like that will take place. And I think more important, or just as important to go along with those guidelines, is a reporting system so that when you do intervene, a report should be written. You could have a preliminary report, say this is why we did it, here's the, what we were concerned about. You can be rigorous about that, and then over a month, two, six months later, a, a final report that says here's, here's what happened as a result. And that the guidelines, as best can be stated, plus the reporting, I think will alleviate some of the concerns you rightly have about moral hazard and risk-taking, etc. I also think, I'll just say one other thing, I think the, the people who made these bad decisions all across the board uh, we've got to have better accountability in the financial system. It seems to me there's still a lot of things that people done and are not being held fully accountable for. Yeah, let me ask you about that. Um, the head of Bear Stearns, I think, lost, I don't know, $80, $100 million, maybe more, um, when his stock collapsed. Uh, now, he should have lost probably a little bit more, uh, the, you know, the price, the way it was set, and that that. You know, over the weekend, it was um, that, that bailout or whatever you want to call it took place. He paid a pretty high price. It's pretty accountable. Now, he obviously probably, I assume he didn't know literally what was going on in the trenches of his business. Maybe he did if he was doing it well, but it's probably busy guys, a lot going on. He can't know everything. Uh, people down in the trenches made decisions about you know, the, the standard way this gets talked about, this subprime thing, which I find bizarre, is that, well, you know, people bundle a lot of junk together, a lot of garbage, and they bundled it with some good stuff, and then they sold it to someone who expected to sell it to someone else. Well, each, you know, and as I said earlier, if prices are going up, usually that doesn't come back to haunt you, but a smart person, not a smart person, anybody should realize in that business, I know it's hard to remember sometimes, that prices can go down. Was it just naivete? And, and surely those people are being held accountable now in the sense that They've all, many of them have lost a lot of money. To the extent they get bailed out by the government, they're not going to be held accountable. But it, people are saying, well, the system's broken. You can just you know, take all these risks and, and get away with it. It seems to me a lot of people who took the risks are losing their houses, going bankrupt, losing their money. Do we need additional regulation? Do we just need more transparency? Uh, or is this just an inevitable aspect of human frailty that sometimes people are overly optimistic about the future? Well, that's, uh, that's certainly the case. It's always going to be that way. But some of the interventions have reduced uh, the accountability, if you like. So just, again, take the, the people who lent money to Bear Stearns. They were bailed out. They, they, didn't have, they didn't have to suffer a bankruptcy of the company they had lent money to. Okay? So they, you could say, also made unwise decisions they did. in that yeah. circumstance, but they are being um, uh, left alone, if you like. And whether the Bear Stearns equity shareholders or the management should have, should have gotten more or less, I, I don't know. That's for the, That really should be for the market uh, to work out. The danger here is that by trying to prevent the spillovers, which you can argue is important to do, uh, you reduce the uh, effective risk that people are holding and therefore encourages more risk and you have more crises in the future because people continue to take on too much risk. So I think that there, it's going back to my idea about about setting some guidelines and reporting to be specific so people know what the rules of the game 
uh, are in this case. And we also uh, have to think about spillovers. I don't think there's anything we can do to avoid that. The financial sector does have spillovers, and you've got to limit them as much as possible. Let's, let's close with that. I think the one of the great gifts uh, that we have in the United States that I think is unusual in most of the world is the, is the amount of liquidity in our system, the ability of, of creative and talented people to borrow money and finance their, uh, their ideas is, is unparalleled. It's good in general that institutions lend to each other, and, but it's not good when you don't look too closely. So, so how, how might we look ahead to the future to how we could maintain the incredible uh, vibrancy of that financial sector, which is probably, I, I think, the best in the world? in terms of the ability to generate funds for new ideas and, and new opportunities, and innovative in the instruments that it creates to help people hedge against risk. And yet, at the same time, as that sector has gotten more innovative, it seems to have more risk in it. And how are we going to, how might we get across that chasm, stay on that bridge? Well, the, the value of all the, all the financial instruments in the financial sector has been tremendous, as you say. But some of the complexity has risen and created more risks in general. So I'd say what we have to do is, is to, through more transparency, uh, perhaps requirements, perhaps the market was going to adjust to that automatically. Uh, th for example, the, the rating agencies did a pretty terrible job where they've got to either shape up or we need to have competition or, or there are other, other entities will come around, people won't pay attention to the rating agencies anymore, so that'll be kind of an adjustment that is going to take place. The, uh, in terms of, I don't think we need a lot more regulation, quite frankly, but the Fed has already s stipulated some, I think, good regulations in the mortgage origination business, so there can be less concerns about, like, about fraud and misleading statements to borrowers. I think that's, like, that's going to be a good thing to be doing. So, so what you have to do here is encourage the innovation but find ways to prevent the threats of spillover. And if you can do that, then people who take the risks can win or lose. And if they lose, that's the breaks, and you take the risk. But what you worry about is a lot of losses like that spills over to the rest of the economy. People are basically haven't done anything risky. And so the idea is to limit that, and I think it's possible. There's various ideas that are being put out there to limit the spillover in the future. Uh, one, one thing that you, you certainly wonder about is these very, very high leverage ratios that we you know, call it very, very small amount of capital compared to the, to the risk that various entities have undertaken. And so I think another thing you could think about is trying to find ways to limit that risk. The marketplace should do a good job if there isn't the bailout, the phenomenon. The marketplace without bailouts will limit the risk just fine, but the marketplace with bailouts encourages people to take too much risk, and then that brings us right back to this spillover problem again. You find it frustrating, as I do, that when we have these bailouts that induce people to take more risk, people blame it on the market. It's a very strange phenomenon. Oh, yeah, it's very, very discouraging. In fact, I think people are looking for, for problems in the markets when frequently it's problems with people. It's dysfunctional, not dysfunctional markets, dysfunctional people frequently who just haven't done the right job and you have that whether you have markets or you don't have markets. The markets basically 
I think it worked very well o over uh, this crisis and, uh, and, and for the most part have been working well. Sometimes they've shut down because people don't know what they're buying and selling because, as you say, there's uncertainty about what's in these securities. I would say basically, though, if you step back and uh, look at the whole deal here, that you can't help but be optimistic about the future. And so it goes back to your risks. You know, what, what are my assessment risks of a disaster? I, I think they're still very low. And in some sense, we have an increased probability of very good times going forward. We've got, if you like, the, the whole world. is Capitalism is spreading to the whole world. And markets are spreading to the whole world like we've never seen before. And we've got literally billions of people who are coming from poverty to middle class and and, uh, and you know hundreds of millions of people in China removed from from poverty recently and and we can have that happen in Africa uh, we can have that other happens in other parts of the world and that's a, that means not only improving their people's uh, well-being but also huge opportunities for people other people in the United States that want to sell goods to these countries or to invest in these countries so I think it's looking over the next 25 years, I think they're really going to be good. And these, this, this road, this crash we're having now, this financial crisis, uh, while it's very severe and could get risky, I think we're going to be looking back on it as, as probably a learning experience, really. Maybe we take care of this now, but the chances of something in the worst in the future will go down. My guest today has been John Taylor of Stanford University. John, thanks for being part of EconTalk. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.